welcome to season three of Gill Athletics Connection Podcast. If this is your first time here, we're so excited you hit the play button today. If you like what you hear, check out our library of hundreds of past guests that is sure to give you value. For everyone else, we're so happy you've come back. Quick favor, if you haven't already, consider taking a minute to rate and review the podcast. This simple act helps amplify these amazing stories, and we just love to hear your feedback. Heck, we may even read it out loud in a future episode. Okay, that's enough of an intro, right? Let's get to it. See what today's guest has in store for us. All right, welcome back to the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. Super excited. I'm your host here, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager. Uh, and let me just take a quick second. You know, I am always floored with anybody who listens to this podcast. As we were talking with today's guest uh, during our pre-interview, I said, you know, it's kind of hard to listen to our podcast. There are some amazing podcasts that are 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes long, much easier to digest. When you commit to press and play on this podcast, you're committing to usually minimum of an hour and probably closer to two hours. Uh, and our numbers are bigger and better than ever. And that's a direct reflection on you as the listener. And most importantly, uh, our guests that we have on this podcast. So I just want to, I'm just so humbled, so thankful that you are here today uh, and that you chose to press play because you got a lot of other options and a lot of things tugging at your time. And uh, I don't take it lightly that you spend your time with us. And with us today, I'm super, you know, I'm always saying I'm super excited. And I am because I like literally, this is kind of like uh, Christmas for me. Every day I get to wake up up and do interviews with amazing coaches around the country and this one I could probably throw a rock and hit where he is he's not too far from us here in Champaign Illinois and he's got an exciting new title which is even more fun so help me welcome today the director of track and field for Kent State University one of my favorite trivia questions we're going to get into that uh, is at Kent State I love it uh, help me welcome the wise the wonderful Nate Fanger Nate how are you sir good how are you guys doing man awesome man so do you know the trivia question that Kent State is in, that's one of my favorite trivia questions ever. You know, I mean, if it comes to Kent State, it, it, I don't know if it revolves around the Ford dead in Ohio or the... <laughs> no, man, it's all positive. So I'm going to ask you the trivia question okay, yeah. and then, because there's there's multiple answers. So name the schools, name the colleges that their mascot does not end in S. Oh, so, you have the, so you have Ohio State Buckeyes, right? That's the most popular, you know, it always oh, ends with man. S, right? The Auburn Tigers, Troy Trojans. What are the, there's there's actually quite a bit, but which ones can you think of that actually don't end with S? Oh my gosh. That, hmm. Yeah, you're right. Because you got the Longhorns or the Seminoles. Everything is S, S, Tar Heels. I, geez. What's Kent State's? Uh, our, our, we have a golden flash. There it is. There's one. That's what I love about Kent State. You're the golden Kent State golden flash. You don't end with S. Yep. Yeah. Have an S. University, uh, of, University of Illinois, the fighting Illini. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I gave you a couple of hints. Come on. You got it. I know you can think of at least one. <laughs> And, these, uh, and there's some and no 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 uh, trick questions. These are some big schools. You know, this isn't like you know, finding some small junior college that I used to work at in Kansas. Like these these are big name schools that that have mascots that don't end or you know uh, I don't know if it'd be mascot or whatever it is, but don't end with s. You care? I I so could care less about mascots. That's my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> That's like my so. Uh, oh, they have a mascot. I wouldn't even known what it is. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
I'll give you one hint, then I'll then I'll name a few of them because other people right now are listening, yelling out their their uh, yeah, guesses right now. Because mine doesn't have an S. All right. What you got? All right. Oh, I'm gonna give you a hint. This school is not in a conference, but kind of is in a conference, but it's not in a conference. Big school. Oh well, I mean Notre Dame. Bam, Fighting Irish. There you go. Yeah. There you go. All right. Some others that I've learned. Uh, the Stanford Stanford Cardinal. Yeah, I was gonna say that too, but they're a tree. So they, but. I, the, that's the first I thought of, but do you even call it like a sycamore tree or something? Yeah, or I, don't know. I, I don't know what that scary tree is, by the way. I don't, I don't know. Like, I was thinking of Stanford as a tree. That's not into the nest, but they don't walk around in their games either. Right, right. But Stanford Cardinal, <laughs> that's their logo, mascot, whatever they want to call it, right? Uh, Tulane. Uh, Tulane is the um, green wave. The wave, right. I know that. Yeah, yeah. Right. not waves, just wave. Tulsa is oddly the golden hurricane. There's never been a hurricane in Tulsa, Oklahoma, but for some reason they're the golden hurricane. Oh, see, I wouldn't have known that at all. Yeah, that, that one's a little, that's why I was saying that, the, you know, with Notre Dame and, uh, okay, here, you know, if Notre Dame's big, here's another big one, Alabama. Oh, yeah, Roll Tide. Crimson Tide. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And then you have a bunch up in the Northeast, uh, like the Harvard Crimson and the, I think Brown is Brown Brown or something like that, which is odd, but they're smarter than me. So I can't figure it out. Okay. Finger we're five minutes in and people are like, that's awesome. What does this have to do with our today's guest? It does though. Right. Remember, cause golden flash. That's why I thought about this. Kent state is one of those part of the trivia questions. Uh, so Nate, you know, again, thank you for being here today. Thank you for, uh, uh uh, let me have a trivia question with you. I got to start coming up with trivia questions for guests. That'll, that'll be a lot of fun. It'll, yeah, it'll, be, it'll be stuff that I have no idea about. So I'll just, uh, I'll just be wrong all the time. Uh, but Nate, so, you know, what we wanted to talk about today, first of all, let's openly publicly give you your, uh, flowers, your due, your, your praise. Congratulations, man. You have just recently been named the director of track and field at Kent state. Uh, that's no small thing because you're following, uh, I'll say a legend. I'll have to tell the story in today's podcast of how Bill Lawson changed my life coaching wise. And then therefore the rest of my life. So you're, you know, you're not, you're following not a small guy here. Uh, and now you're the, the director, you're the big man, no, no longer just that's air quotes, the throws coach, you're capital T capital H capital E you're the coach. How's it feel to finally be in the, the, I don't want to say the big boy chair, but the, uh, the bigger chair. <laughs> That's a big boy chair. Uh, you know what, I guess as awkward as it sounds, I mean, uh, I mean, it, I guess it's exciting because I get, I get my own direction. So, you know, being a throws coach, we know what kind of we want to do or how we would proceed, but you don't necessarily have that power to proceed as being an assistant coach. So, I know you just kind of tuck things down in your gut. You tuck things down away, uh, but having the ability to now create your own staff, uh, do your own thing, have your meets. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that empowers, it empowers you a little bit more. I don't know if I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so crazy. It's not like I grew up wanting to be a track and field coach or even a head coach. So it's like, Oh, here's the next step. Let's go win the next 20 conference champions in a row. And you know, the goal is to be top 25 in the country type thing. So. I love it. Well, let's put a pin in that because I do, I love to explore it always whenever someone becomes a first time head coach, which I actually don't know. I'm, I'm guessing that's, that's for you. We'll find out here in a little bit. Uh, but also I think something unique here, and it probably shouldn't be unique in my, maybe my opinion. Uh, I do want to explore as we go through the journey, uh, what it's 
like for a throws coach to be a head coach? And I say that because I, I could probably name about 10 off the top of my head, but not a hundred. Uh, but I also know throws coaches pretty intimately as far as resourcefulness, uh, coaching wise, uh, time management. I mean, I just don't know how you can be a throws coach with the, the, the different types of events and quantities of numbers of athletes that you typically have and not have some really strong head coaching, um, positives already built into you. So I, I want to explore that as we get to it, but let's kind of kick back. You talked about, you know, the goal was never maybe even to be a track coach or maybe even be a director. Where does, you know, at some point coaching, if, if you were an athlete went from something that happens to you, a coach would, would pour into you as an athlete and somewhere in your mind, at some point it had to flip and be like, Oh, wait a minute. I actually could be like this could be my profession. I don't have to be an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer. I, I actually could be a track coach. Where, where does coaching come into you and in, in your life? Oh, I mean, that goes way back to, to be hundred percent honest with you. I mean, there's not a lot of me's like when I was 12 years old, I decided that's what I want to do is go to the Olympics. So it was, it, I, this has been this, I, I have a 12 year old now and he's very athletic. He does his thing. But no one in my family at 12, 15, and 17 has decided this is what they were going to do. At 12 years old, I knew I was going to the Olympics. I had my goal set. I was, I was going to throw the discus. It's, it was my whole – so I've, I've been in this mentally for a long time. And then you get to a point – when I was in high school, um, I'm from Montana, by the way. And you would think Montana didn't have a very big high school. But I ended up going to a, a bigger high school my junior and senior year. And they had like – 34 guy throwers and I, my, my throws coach would take 17 and go throw the shot put. He would give me the 17. And so I was coaching the 17 other discus throwers. So we kind of split half and half and I would help out the discus throwers while he was down the shot put. And then he would come back and then he would help me after practice got kind of wound down. Uh, and there wasn't too many people out there. Then, then he would coach me. So I was coaching in high school already a little bit. And then I got to college and I would just kind of help out. And then, so I've been coaching, honestly, myself or somebody else from when I was super young. It's just kind of was instilled in me. And my, my dad it was a teacher. My mom was a teacher. My sister's a teacher. My grandpa was a professor. We come from a family of kind of teaching anyway. So I, I don't know if it's just part of who I was as I grew up or who I am. So it maybe isn't the most uncommon thing to hear about kind of that player slash coach, but it might be uncommon that it was a 14, 15, 16, 17 year old, a high schooler. And you said really early, 12 years old, you're like, oh yeah, I'm like, this is my mission. I'm going to the Olympics in, in the discus, by the way. It, it, yeah. It, that, that's not uncommon for a 12 year old to say, I'm going to go to the NFL or, you know, major league baseball, but rarely, unfortunately, do we have the, the kid that says, oh yeah, in the discus, I, that's where I'm going. Right how did you get to that point though? Cause you didn't just as a 12 year old and coach looked at you and said, Oh yeah, you're, you're basically my assistant coach. And then I'll help you after how did that evolve to where you were kind of this student athlete coach as a high schooler? Well, I guess my, so my dad was a, is a, well, I guess was cause he retired, but he was a um, junior high track and field coach. And so, you know, in junior high, sixth, seventh grade, they would have us try the mile and the high jump and the bold and this, and, you know, all these different events that you're trying because they don't know where they're going to put you because you're young and you're developing. Um, but he, my dad was a throws coach. So he would coach the shot put, the shot put. And then we had another discus coach, but I was like, no joke. When I was 
in eighth grade, I wrestled, I wrestled in seventh grade, I wrestled 98 pounds and in eighth grade, I wrestled at 105. So I was tiny. So I, I liked being aggressive. I was an angry kid. I had a lot of frustration as a kid. So the shot, the throwing events actually fit me fairly well. I could get a little bit aggressive, let that out, but I sucked in the shot put because I was hundred pounds, right? Soaking wet. Discus though, you can get away with being kind of technical and long and more of a smooth event. If you can kind of smooth those techniques out, you can get away with throwing relatively far or further um, and not having to have that muscle tissue behind you as a shot putter. So I always found myself over in the discus ring a lot and just, and, and it was, it was fun having those coaches kind of help me out. I had, um, <clears throat> I, I had a, a, a junior high or a, a church right beside our junior high that I ended up throwing a discus right through their church window at one time. And just, just small memories that you keep when you were like a young kid. And then, you know, I'm getting a John Powell discus video and I would watch that like a 30 minute thing. I'd probably watch it two or three times a night. So I was 13, 14 years old and I just put it on repeat and repeat, and rewind, 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 and just kind of dig in all this stuff. And I had the Mac Wilkins discus video and being in Montana, I guess I didn't have a ton to do. So when you're kind of bored, well, you found something to do. Let's just do the best you could do at it. And that just tended to be athletic slash discus. I love that dedication of watching the film because back then, you know, we're not that old, but we certainly didn't have YouTube back then. So we were watching those videos over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah. You mentioned, exactly. you mentioned mom, dad, cousins, brother, everybody was a teacher as you were going through high school and started looking towards the college side. Was it kind of like, I'm going to be a teacher or what did you think about career wise at this point? Yeah. So um, th that's the other and eventually we'll get into reptiles, but the other, the other part of it, I'm artistic. So even as a coach right now, I, I mean, obviously we coach uh, the physicality aspect of it. We have to know the central nervous system. You have to know the muscular system. You have to know how to develop an athlete, but I, I really see it as an artistic side as well. So there's an art flow, there's energy flow, there's movement flow. So when I was uh, in high school, I did um, a lot of art stuff. I, I was, I majored I did AP art. I went into college, wanted to be a freelance art, freelance artist. I was going to draw for medical books. It was kind of my back of my head, go to the Olympics and draw for books. And then as you're kind of in the college system, um, you're kind of like, well, art's not going to necessarily cut it. So I went to art education. And then I was like, well, I, and I started off actually my first year of college was at University of Arizona. <clears throat> so, but I ended up transferring here after Mike, like Mike Maynard was my coach. And I transferred up here after my first year because of finances. Um, and then I kind of just worked my way from art education and ended up doing uh, education, like a social studies comprehensive thing. Like I could go, or I could do uh, geology, geography, psychology. It was kind of all comprehensive type things. So, yeah, I ended up doing education, even though that was, wasn't my in, initial thought. I'll say you, that. You probably wouldn't believe this, but you're the second person that I know. I, I know someone who does that, who draws for medical books. Oh, no way. Yeah. She's in our small group for church. And I always thought it was fast because I never thought about like, oh yeah, someone has to do that. And someone has to do that really well, by the way, because it has to be, you know, anatomically correct and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And, uh, but I was like, well, what a niche job. Like this, this is all she does is she draws all these different things for, uh, here at university of Illinois for, for medical books and such. So I, I never thought I'd meet another person who was like, oh yeah, that's what I was going to do. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, I knew when I was a very young age, uh, it's funny you talk about your church group because that's where I used kind of kind of like, hey, where does God direct me? And I loved art. So it was like, hey, I love the the anatomy of the hand or the leg or just all the details.
details of the muscular and structural system. And so I like that fine detail work. Uh, it didn't really pan out as far as drawing stuff later on in life, but that's where my kind of reptiles, the, the artistic side of me is, I, I love the color and the aspects of what I have downstairs in my basement, which is still it's a huge part of who I am as well. So I, I love that side. You know, I came up through coaching sprints, hurdles, and jumps, but early on, I mean, maybe the first college real job I had uh, at Troy University, I found myself going to practice early just to watch the hammer throwers specifically. I love the shot and the discus and the jab, uh, but those seem more. Um, I'm going to say violent, you know, especially shot, like, you know, it's just one big push and then even javelin run. And it's just, you know, stopping and trying to think everything into it. But the hammer seemed more, th that might be the right word for me to describe it as well as artistic. It feels like, oh, it's a dance. It's like a ballet in this really small circle, by the way. Uh, right. And you do these amazing circle, you know, uh, turns. And then there's a little bit, it, it, I know it's probably more violent than I'm going to say, but then there's like this little violence at the end to, you know, actually release the hammer. And then it goes so stinking far. Um, and, and every stop I've ever had ball state, Mississippi, I, I just love watching the hammer. And, and it's just so, it's just fascinating to me. I, I love, love that event. Um, you mentioned you went to Arizona. So I'm going to assume you got bigger than 105 pounds to go throw the discus at Arizona under the great Mike Maynard, by the way. I mean, it's not like no slouch of a coach here picked you up. How did that progression go and uh, as to Arizona and with Mike? I was good. You know, like, so every year, you know, when you're a young kid, you've got to, you've got to try to put on that weight. It's going to come no matter what, but that was, I mean, that's part of the goal, like liking the weight room or not, or liking to eat or not. That was, so I went from, I went to, I was 115 pounds as a freshman and then 130 as a sophomore, like 170 or 180 as a senior, then went to Arizona and got up to, well, probably by the time I got there, I was around like 190. I got up to about 205. Um, and then I think probably that, yeah, 205 that first year where I redshirted at University of Arizona, which was an awesome year. It was just, it came down to um, Dominic Johnson was a pole vaulter. And he ended up going 18-8 that year. And they were going to kind of give me some scholarship, but I think they ended up giving him pretty much the full scholarship. And I totally get it at 18-8. And he was going to the Olympics that year, I think, in 96. Um, I totally got it. So it was kind of like, well, shoot, do I financial burden that? And Maynard was awesome. He, he really helped out. Um, and Dave Loshenkal was there who knew the Pagels. Um, and the Pagels were, had just taken a position up here at Kent State. And Ramona was the, was the American record holder in shot put. So, um yeah through through that kind of networking uh i i was able to get in contact with them and and blue trick had called me he was down in north carolina as well so brian was down in north carolina and i knew him slightly and i and, and i he was told the pegels were up here so it was kind of between in my head kind of like that blue trick down north carolina or kent state and i just thought in my head like hey ramona's not wasn't a very big person and i'm not a very big person so they kind of understand that smaller side of the technical framework so i yeah i came up here in 96 so yeah i was an athlete here you know 97 98 99 and 2000 yeah and I, think then, I think that's an interesting point you brought up there i just had a conversation with a coach and we were talking about everybody's every every coach's favorite subject right now the portal um and right. he, he was lamenting about it but but also he you know admittedly said well i'm also gaining from it as well and this is a, a yeah i don't want to give away too much um but so, what, uh, you, you know, I, I get a lot of inside secrets and I'm blessed by that. So I don't give away any inside secrets. But what we were talking about was 
some of the kids that were transferring, they uh, not not only in and out for for this coach, but he was talking about, you know, some of these kids were on 50% scholarships and now they're going somewhere where they can get a full or 90. And he's like, he was like, I can I can't hardly fault them for that. You know, I don't want to saddle a kid with student debt and things like that. So I, I like that topic about, you know, Arizona and finances. And I was like, okay, you know, I, you know, they had another teammate who did really, really well. So I kind of get it, but you know what, I, I don't want to be saddled with a bunch of student debt either. So wh where do I, where can I go? Cause at the end of the day, how many of us are going anywhere in our athleticism for track and field, any sport, by the way, uh, that's going to go make money. So get that education and get it with as little debt as possible. I think that's a bigger subject that maybe we don't really talk about a lot of times. No, sure. I, no, I get that as well. I mean, you have to have, <clears throat> that's, that's kind of the hard aspect of, of track and field. You got to understand that athletes are not only athletes, they're, they're people, they're humans. They're going to have, right. like you say, debt that they're going to have at the, at the end of their college career. And they're not going to be going to the Olympics. And even if they went to the Olympics, the Olympics don't even pay really that much. I mean, right. it just depends upon, it is, it's a heart and passion issue. Like depends upon where they want to fit in, where they feel like they're, they, they need to be. So I mean, that to me is on a personal level. So I, I have no problem with the transfer portal for the most part out there. I mean, they've got to be where they, they, they fit best and suits them. Yeah. And especially in track and field, I, I have a little less, um, I'm a little less concerned about our football and basketball players because they're all on full rides. But when we only right. get 12 and a half ish for the men and 18, which 18 seems like a lot, but it only seems like a lot because you're comparing it to the men who are at 12.6. Uh, I mean, 18 right. is we're talking about what is it 82 for football and it's you know 15 i think for basketball and the roster size of like 12 you know they don't give out all their full rights for <laughs> i'm sure i got those numbers mixed up but uh but it's a farce when it comes to what our sport is in the scholarship level th that supports it so it, it's hard for, for me on the outside now again i'm not coaching anymore so i also it's it's way easier for me to go yeah sorry vanger that kid transferred but they're going to get a full ride and it's like yeah but man right. i was baking on that kid <laughs> so it's my job man so i, I get it i get it so you go to kent yep. state now you don't seem to have a problem you went from montana to arizona that's a big distance and obviously in montana and around that area there's there were some probably great options for you for school and for for throwing and now you go all the way out to the midwest so you don't seem to have a problem going away from home and being kind of on your own and establishing your own roots no, no. I mean, I, not, it's not like I didn't like my family and my parents, but I mean, listen, I'm my own person. I, that's just the way I am to this day, even with my family. Like I, I am who I am. Like I, I'm not tied in or down anywhere. It doesn't feel like, I mean, essentially this, and you had mentioned like a home Bible group, but that's a big thing. And maybe we'll get into that later, but that's essentially in who I am. Like Christ can lead and direct and where he wants me to go. And that's, I, I, I felt like I was called down to university of Arizona because Maynard and I like th that warm weather atmosphere, the ability to be able to train outside year round. Um, and then, you know what, things didn't quite pan out there, but obviously if we're, if, if you kind of understand how God works in his sovereignty, he puts you in a situation cause he's going to move you to another situation. So Lash and call it hooked me up with um, the Pagos up at Kent state. And this is where, this is where he's, he's essentially had me make home for the last 26 years. So yeah, which, which I, I have no problem jumping around that's for sure which that's in its rarity too right i mean you, i was just talking with uh marlon brink our guest last week about he's from uh, wayne state nebraska and he's been at that institution for 20 i think he's going on his 23rd season is what we talked about and you know that's that's a rarity uh 
of, of coaches that are staying at one place. And, and, and I'm not, by the way, no judgment. Like if you're, cause by the way, 10 year career for coaching college. And I went to five different places. So I can't say anything about anybody's jumping around. Uh, in fact, you know, if you listen to Lou Shexnader's episode here on the podcast, he talks about, Hey, we pay our coaches so little. If you can go somewhere, especially early in your career, that makes more money. Go, <laughs> you got to, you got to take care of yourself for one day to retire and take care of your family and things like that. So uh, no, no judgment at that, but you went to Kent state and so is this where the story ends? Like you went to undergrad and then you became an assistant and now the director, what's this? Is that, is that it? All right. Well, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for being on the podcast here today. This is our shortest one ever. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. That's it. But so that may be the story. And I actually, I love that story and to explore why, because obviously and it could be, you know, God's plan. It could have been your plan. Uh, it could have been plans that you thought were going to go on, but obviously you chose to stay as well. You're definitely not stuck at Kent State. You're choosing to be at Kent State. So what was sure. it coming from undergrad? How did it, how did, you know, there's a very common way to go somewhere else as you, you graduate. So you go maybe be a GA or go somewhere else. How did you stay at Kent State after your undergrads? Well, I graduated and I hadn't actually graduated. I like I pushed back my student teaching because I was not going to student teach and do my my senior year, my my that spring. Um, so I said, listen, I'll student teach that fall. So I came back and I did um, I student taught from the fall of 2000 into 2021. Um, but they had kind of things went down kind of weird here. Rainbow had ended up going to Wichita State um, <clears throat> and a big crew had followed him, John. On Wise went down there. Um, Wendell McCraven, who was the distance coach, ended up saying, got the head position up here. And I was still here doing my student teaching. He was interviewing for throws coaches while I was still training. And I wasn't even honestly, listen, dude, I wasn't thinking of being a throws coach. I was going to get my teaching degree. Then I was going to go back to Montana, work with my strength coach, get stronger, boom, go to the Olympics. That was my goal. I was, I was right around 195 feet. If I put on some strength, you know, do I get to 205 or 210? Where does that lead me? <clears throat> and you know it ended up being like Wendell had interviewed some good candidates like Lisa Mitsupika who was really good she, he brought in probably three or four people and no one had ended up taking the position so I don't know if it was probably like October or, no, or November and he was like hey Banger, you would you ever thought about being a throws coach and I was like hey, what, what, what I, I don't know you want me to be your throws coach he's like sure you want to do your interview I was like sure or whatever so I stepped in his office for 15 minutes he's like oh okay you're my throws coach I'm like all right, awesome <laughs> That's all I remember. My resume was like worked at McDonald's, went to back and field camp. I mean, dude, it was so it was so sad. Your was resume so was I'm here. There, there you go. What, what else do we got to do here, Wendell? <laughs> right. Like, well, yeah, I have no resume. I'm out of college. So what year was that? Because I was at Ball State. Oh, two and oh, three seasons. Yeah. Oh, two and oh, three. I thought you were Wendell definitely was the head coach during that time. Maybe Bolt was the coach for the first year, but Wendell's the only one I remember being at Kent State. Were you at Kent State when I was at Ball State? So I got, so I was here again in 2000 in that summer, 2000 summer, that split, split up, like Rainbow was out, Wendell got the job. I got the job, but I couldn't get officially hired until I, I actually graduated. So I graduated that December. So in the fall, I was doing my student teaching from September to December. So I actually was officially on the payroll um, starting December, uh, yeah, well, it would have been January 2001. Yeah, okay. But they, 
they didn't really actually pay me. I didn't find out until like August of that year. It was just like a stipend type thing. So I officially, officially was hired August, um, like August 1st, 2021. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But I was there, but I never really skipped a beat because, you know, I was, I was an athlete from 97, 98, 99, 2000. Then I was coaching 2000 all the way up. I had not, I like, I it was years as an athlete, then boom, straight as a coach. So. Yeah. That, you know, speaking of the hammer, like I talked about, you know, that was amazing, right? We had Zach Riley and Dale Cowper. And I mean, just two guys in the Mac conference battling out. You, you saw like a mini preview of nationals at our conference meet. Cause those two guys would go to nationals and did really well. It was such a, such a fun time and really taught me about the Mac conference. You, you know, you, you can say all you want about power five and then, you know, the rest of the five or whatever G five, whatever they call them uh, that Mac conference. And I don't even want to say, I used to say, especially in the throws, but it is kind of all across jump sprints, right. you, you name it distance, etc. cetera. Um, but during that time, I just remember the throws being really, really strong, strong and having some really good throws coaches in that conference during that time. Yeah. I mean, there's still, there's still a lot here. It's, it gets a good battle spot. That's for sure. There's no yeah, question. Absolutely. So you become the assistant coach. What happens to the training aspect for you? That, that was a pretty big part of your, your goal set. Did that go away because coaching takes 400 hours a week <laughs> or how did you kind of help or try to, to balance the two? Well, so when I graduated, I still wanted to be top tier level athlete, but you get to a point, honestly, where, you know, you know, you've probably maximized that side of your body. I was 22 or 23 years old. Um, but I, I, it was, it was a good transition. It was a weird transition. Um, but I ended up transitioning. I don't know quite how it happened, but I transitioned to the javelin for a little bit. I actually picked up a javelin and threw it for no, I don't even know. I don't even want to call it competitive for two or three years, but it was, a, it was a stage where like, all right, listen, I'm not a big guy. Like if I wasn't in the weight room, I guess probably at two, two thirty, two twenty five 225 to two thirty. And if I wasn't in the weight room for a week or two, I dropped down to two fifteen to two ten. It was just like, I couldn't actually hold strength. It sucked. That's why you, you don't see me. You didn't see me on any big stage by any stretch, but the javelin was still something where, uh, you know, Technically, you have to wrap, wrap your mind around it. <clears throat> and it was something I had I enjoyed. It was still a throwing event, but it wasn't something I had done. But it, picking up for a year or two was perfect for me because, I, I you know, Dorf, Henson Dorf, was, he, was, he was our javelin thrower here, which is a stud, one, one, of, my, one of my best friends down at Wichita State. And he helped me kind of like, hey, this is what you kind of need to do. Um, yeah, I would send film down, <clears throat> um, down south every once in a while to um, some of the, some of the coaches down there, like, Hey, you know, give me an eye. What do you think of this? And that actually was a big aspect of me. I knew the shot put well, I knew the discus well hammer. I had thrown when I was in college, like 190, 191. So I knew it, but I didn't, you know, it was a whole growth aspect of it with John Smith and Judd Logan. And those guys kind of mentoring me through that position point, but the javelin, I had no clue. So throwing it myself competitively for a year or two <clears throat> was perfect. Exactly what I needed as far as getting into that coaching aspect as well. So I didn't think of it was going to teach, take me a coaching aspect. I just want to do it competitively, but yeah, I ended up blowing out my shoulder and getting some cortisone in that after two years. It was like, you can't really transition from a, a muscular event, which is more discus shop oriented into the, into the javelin, even though I enjoyed it for a hot minute. Uh, yeah. The, the, there's your good, good training mechanism for myself. 
there's your PSA right there. You notice he said, okay, so I had to get some cortisone. <laughs> like that was maybe not the great health wise there on the shoulder. Uh, you know, that, that brings up a great point. You know, I, I don't believe I, I once had someone tell me they were a volleyball coach and she told me because she had done the events. Yeah. I was a, a, a absolutely terrible hurdler in high school. Um, a tad bit better, whatever, whatever terrible is, whatever, just a tad bit better is half miler. I was garbage. I, I was just, I mean, there was nothing genetically. I was bankrupt coaching. I was bankrupt, probably motivation. I was just above bankrupt, but I was able to take that passion of track and field and have a lot of great mentors and coaching education and became an okay coach. She tried to tell me because I didn't do the events that I couldn't be a good coach because she did the events that she would be better. Now, obviously that's a farce, right? There, you, you, you're thinking right now of a hundred coaches that never did an event that coach it out of this wazoo, man. They're just amazing, right? What, what do you recommend? You, you talked about that that helped you throw in the javelin, which I can see where it would help. I, I don't think it would not help, right? Um, right. But there's going to be plenty of coaches uh, and not specifically the throws here, but because we have a throws coach, we'll take that as the example. How do you, what's your recommendation for a coach who, you know, was a, let's, let's do the reverse. Let's say you got a coach, a throws coach guy, a guy or gal who wants to be a throws coach and was a really, uh, they don't have to be good. They were a javelin thrower. Mm -hmm. And now they're responsible for coaching the shot, the disc, the hammer, and of course the jab. What's your recommendation for someone who never threw the shot, the hammer, the disc to be able to coach it? That See, that is such a loaded question though, because <clears throat> you have right-minded people and you have left-minded people. You have the mathematics and you have the art. I was about to say, this is the artistic side coming out. Perfect. Okay. This is 100% me as an artist. Like I need, even as I write my lifting workouts or as I administer, Hey, you're going to throw a heavy ball, then a light ball, whatever you're going to do. Right. I need to know how that feels within my head and in my body before I administer to the athlete. So I know if I'm going to give them the Russian cycle in the weight room, I know how it feels. I know the buriedness of it. I know how they're going to respond on a day-to-day -day basis. And I know they're going to be pissed off, wore down, but I know what to expect from them. I know if I expect to work on their plant leg, their block leg, how that's going to feel for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. So to me, as a coach, I have to be able to step into their shoes physically. That's a big aspect of who I am in my head and how I'm going to program because I need to know what the response is, is to that athlete. Now it doesn't dictate how that, that day is going to unfold. If, I, if they come out that day and like, Hey, how's it going? And the response is, uh, you know, it's, it's okay. I know they either flunked a math test. They broke up with their girlfriend or boyfriend. They didn't get the right food they needed. So that might adjust every day is an adjustment to what's going to happen in the rings or in the weight room. And, and you've got to be on your toes for that adjustment. And you can't take your program and throw it out the window for that day. You have to have, you still have to have that program ability, but you lessen the numbers, you increase the numbers. Everything's a slightly different, but for me as a coach, I have to know primarily how that response is going to come outside of their daily life. How is the response going to come from the weight room or from the throwing aspect of it? But again, that's my artistic side of it. You can really be a good coach in knowing the number side of it. I know people who have everything calculated down to the, if they throw this ball, this number, this many throws this day and this, but they have everything precisely down on a computer and graph out and everything else i'm like ah, i am so anti-graph anti-number anti-every but that's just who i am as a coach right you can find really good success in my side of coaching or really good success in their side of coaching so everyone comes at coaching slightly differently 
and how they process. It's all processing. It's all cognitive processing and how you think about it and how it kind of flows out that body. To me, it's all about energy. How do I position the, even in positioning, even technique in and of itself, positions are only there to establish energy flows and the energy has to flow in certain mechanisms. So it goes out through the implement. And if it's not, you don't get the proper energy into the implement. It's, it's still not going to go far, no matter how well the positions are created or not created. So everything comes down to energy flow and how the athlete can move their body. I think you really hit something on the head there. Like, in fact, if you're listening, like hit the rewind button about three times and listen to that what you said there, Nate was, I'm, I'm going to say it in a slightly different way. Make sure you, you correct me if I'm, I misunderstand it. You talked about coaching the person, not just the event. Like you're not coaching robots. I, I, I thought your point about when a kid comes in and they're like, um, you know, yeah, yeah, today's okay or whatever. And you're, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. This, this, this kid's on a little bit of a downward, you flunked a test, girlfriend, boyfriend broke up with them. Mrs. Mom, uh, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's not uncommon, right? Mrs. Family. Uh, I'm yep. probably not going to get the A plus workout that I wrote up. However, we need to still get the right things going today. So maybe we lighten the weight load in the weight room. Maybe we take off a rep or two outside on try. You're coaching the person. Do you do, so I think that's extremely uh, important. Do you do the opposite? And what I mean by that is a uh, kid comes to you for practice and he or she is bouncing like they are on cloud nine. They passed a test. Mom or dad slipped them an extra, I almost said a 20, but in 2022, that's probably not a lot of money. Uh, slipped them an extra $100 Venmo. Um, you, you know, the cute boy or cute girl, talk to them, whatever. Do you ever add a rep or add weight in that case? Yes, 100%. That's, and the other thing, I'm, again, so if we're going to go down that line, like I try to, so in the world of throws, <clears throat> I'm probably going to probably try to get anywhere between 22 to 30 throws a day. But if I know they, or sometimes down to 10, if they're really beat down, but if I know they've got a ton of energy and they're on like throw 22 and I'm like, Hey, what number are you on? They're like, I think I'm like 20 or 22. And I'm like, well, you've got 15 more to go now. They're like, what? Like, yeah, you've got the energy and you continue to produce. And there's no reason why we don't get that production today because you might not get it tomorrow. So let's continue to push into that production. And I mean, on that same point in the weight room, like an unpredicted max day. Now this doesn't happen all the time, but there's no reason why if you're feeling froggy and we're doing doubles and triples and they're like, Hey, you know what? We're going to max out today. Throw on a single and see where you're going because you've got a ton of pop. You've got a ton of energy and just go get it done. Sometimes trying to calculate that out doesn't necessarily work out calculation wise, but if you're feeling it today, do it. Like I'm not going to max you out necessarily on eight sixes in five days. That, that, that's more volume, more hypertrophy, more build the body up. But on a day where you're getting feeling popping, you're doing doubles and triples. Heck, dude, if you feel like you're maxing out, it doesn't happen all the time, but you got to go with the feel good or bad. So on that artistic side, the coaching art side, how do you sell that to, this is the closest we have ever gotten to X's and O's. So I'm, I'm walking a fine line with you, my friend. I told you I always had the most fun with throws coaches. So, um, we're, we're getting too close in my opinion, but, right. but, but it's my show. So, you know, I write the rules. Uh, yeah. how do you sell that to the athlete? You, you were dealing with in your area, 18 to 22 year olds, when you add work to someone, it's a punishment, you know, it's like, oh, well, go do more of that. It, uh, here you're adding work to them, but it's actually not a punishment. It's, it's actually an attaboy. Like you're doing so well, like everything's flowing. Let's, let's get more of the good stuff going while we can. How do you right. on the art side, 
get that kid to, to believe into that. Like, Oh, coach isn't mad at me. I'm, I'm, I'm doing more because he's mad at me when in the, in the opposite is actually true. How do you, how do you sell that to the kid? Again, so yeah, we can back back off the X's and O's and talk about either the recruiting aspect of it or who you're getting as an athlete aspect of it. Like, so if you're if you're going to recruit the kid, listen, I the, the longer I am in this in this job, the best and the most advantageous way to recruit yourself is to negative recruit yourself to say, listen, you're coming in and you're going to get your butt handed to you on a day to day basis. You're going to not be a very big fish you're going to learn how to like come in with seniors and juniors that are kicking your butt, having better numbers and reps than you are. So you've got to live through the grind for a long time and establish yourself. And if you don't aren't hungry and passionate about being kicked to the curb for a little bit, then you probably shouldn't be here. Cause the fact of the matter is, I mean, though, this is the way I say it is I guess the, my vernacular, but we're track and field is a bastard sport and the throwers or a bastard child within the bastard sport. So it's not like we're even cared about a whole ton, which is fine. I've got no problem with it. That kind of, that's kind of what I feed off anyway. I like, I like feeding off like, Hey, no one's looking or no one's caring. I, let's just go kick some butt. Um, but they've got to actually, they've got to like that attitude as well. How much pain can I suffer through to make myself better? How good do I want to be? What's the process of this thing? Is it the process or is it the end of the day? I want to be a 200 footer, but do you want to work every second of every day to be that 200 footer? And it's, it's the attitude who you recruit, essentially. And it doesn't have to be necessarily, sometimes I'm not looking for the best number, uh, you know, call out, out of high school. But I, I got to have a kid who, when I get on the phone with, are telling me about what they're doing in the weight room and telling me who they're watching film-wise and what are they doing and how do I get better? Now, there's some athleticism to that because you can be a hungry athlete, but if you don't have the talent, you know, you're not going to get very far. God's only giving you so much ability. So how much that, does that ability and hunger and passion work together uh, that's, that's who, who you're going to find. So if, I, I mean, if we're in that scenario where I'm telling you, you're going to do more that day and they're not excited about it, then I probably don't have the right person. <laughs> so, so you kind of look at it like, Oh, maybe I didn't do my homework right or whatever circumstances. Like I, I like, yeah. And, and I, listen, I still have kids like that in, in your program. And, and it's not like, you know, maybe when I was a younger coach, I'd get pissed off. Like, Oh man, I want everybody to have this hunger. But I, again, I, I'm me. So I have a hunger and passion every day. I wake up all hungry. Now I can't necessarily drive your hunger and your desire. So you kind of, nowadays, I, I would say I, I psychologically coach 90% of the time and, and physically coach 10% of the time. It's, it's how the relationships build and how you understand your kids and your athletes and, and how you're going to give them and administer the workouts that day because you know who they are. So it's, it's, it's building a relationship. I, I am more of a psychological coach and, and can benefit getting more out of the kid than I can just trying to like plug in numbers and say, hey, well, this was your rep scheme today in the weight room and you didn't get it done. So you're going to get worse. No, well, you didn't get it done quite the way you want to. But tomorrow, let's transition and, and get some other stuff out of you. Like everyone's a little different. I, I, I call them, you don't want to be a cookie cutter coach. You don't want to you don't want to have a mindset of this is the way you need to coach. And this is the only way you need to coach. There's every kid you coach is going to be different. So you're probably, you're coaching every different kids, kids slightly different, differently, right? Every, every, everybody has to come to a different terms in their head on how they approach things. But again, you're, a, you're, I'm one throws coach out there. So I have say 20 kids out there. I not at one time, they kind of come through, you know, different, different times of the day, but you still have to have a singularity within the throws program. What are we after as a group? And then within that singularity, I can still branch off and still create different individuals 
you know, verity. Some, some people I'm trying to win a national championship. Some people I'm trying to get to my own conference championship because can you even make the 30, the 30 squad roster? I don't know. So everyone's got a different, different place. Yeah. I think coaching for sure is the art and science, right? Cause if it was fully one way or the other, if it was all art, it'd be one way. If it was all science, well then what do we actually need to coach for? You could just write up a workout on the tablet and have the kid go to the track or the weight room by themselves. And what are you really doing here? Right. As, as a coach. So I love that aspect. Explore that a little bit more. Help me understand. You talk about your coaching 90% more psychologically, 10% physical. I, I think I, I might've switched one of your words up there. Where does that come from? You, you mentioned some mentors earlier that we didn't delve into that. I'd love to, you mentioned, you know, Judd Logan, um, you mentioned um, the Pagels. Uh, John Bagels, Smith. Yeah. 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 John, of course. Uh, did, did you pick up that from guys and gals like them or was this something earlier because of the, you know, the, the, the bend of artistic for you as a, as a younger kid? I, I'm going to say the, the artistic side, here's, here's what helped me to be the best throws coach to be hundred percent honest with you. God has given me only so much athletic ability. And so I had to work my flipping butt off to do what I did to throw 195 feet. I'm five foot, 10, I'm 220 pounds. I don't deserve to be in the ring, to be honest with you, with some of the competitors that I was in. So I had to do everything I needed to do to learn technical positions. So all the film that I watched, everybody I watched, I would watch people and watch people. And you know, you don't just watch the small people, you end up watching the big people and you see the nuances and how they come out of the back of the ring and how they strike. And are they using the left leg or right leg? And you watch it so many times that you end up being a student of the sport. And that's, it, it's kind of what I push to my athletes. you got to be a student of the sport. You wake up every morning, you got to watch some film, get an idea of what you're doing that day, go do some drills. If, if you're only doing what I'm giving to you at practice, then you're only going to be so good. You need to have more, you need to take it home with you. Um, but that, so that's the physical aspect of it, knowing kind of how to throw. But again, the psychological aspect of it is trying to convince the kids, and that's not trying to convince the kids, but it's keeping their passions going. So if I'm at a heavy cycle in the weight room, like the Russian cycle really just really tears their body down. They get super tired mentally in the fall. They're trying to do their catch up on their, their studies, their work while they're tired, while they're trying to get technique done. You psychologically, you really have to drag them out of the mud every day. So essentially I'm kind of their big like, Hey guys, we could do this. You know, I get it. You're tired, but let's continue to do this. So it, it, the coaching aspect of it, I know I can write a program and I've been consistent with it for the last 20 years. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. You do add little nuances, five or 10%. You always change up here and there. Um, so you keep things fresh. And so the athletes don't know they're doing the same thing like day to day or year to year. You want to keep things fresh for them. But the biggest aspect of it as a coach is go out there and be their cheerleader, you know, or, or you know what, even not just their cheerleader. Sometimes you got to be a, a, their dad. I call, I call it surrogate parenting. So when I, when I recruit you, I tell their parent, like, listen, I'm a surrogate parent. They're leaving you when they're coming to me. So I have them now for the next four or five years. And they're under my care, under my tutelage. And they are like my children. I, and, and sometimes the dad has to be really harsh and, and put their foot down and say, hey, listen, you're screwing up. You're pissing me off. And you need to learn the hard way. And I, they, I, that resonates. I think they need that discipline sometimes. And it gets them out of some funks. Or they kind of have to learn a little lesson in life. Because not everyone's coming in here, you know, necessarily as passionate every single day or, or wanting to go to the Olympics. You know, you got to have a little parenting involved in there as well. So there's parenting, there's there's cheerleading, there's, you know, writing programs, there's learning artistic flow, 
the coaching side of it has a big aspect to it. And I think younger coaches, I, when I was a younger coach, it would be 90% that programming aspect of it and 10% psychological, right? I was your cheerleader 10% of the time, but doggone it. If you didn't listen to my programming, you're pissing me off and you're screwing up. It is 20 years into the show. It is totally reversed. Here's what I've got. If you don't want to do it, you're probably not going to get very good, but I get it because you're being an idiot today, but I'm trying to psychologically bring you back around to that. And I think that's where some of the best coaching comes from. Not necessarily the numbers on paper, but how that relationship works. So, so how do we, I love that. I mean, bingo and here's where where you can bring value from your experience you just said early in my career the 90 10 was probably physical versus psychological and now 20 years on it, it's flipped 180 it's completely opposite so you had to have gone through ups and downs uh athletes that challenged you uh personal uh aspects of the coaching that uh, uh challenged you to do that. It didn't just one day you didn't, on your 10th anniversary of coaching, it didn't just flip. Like it went from 90, 10 to 80, 20 to 70, 30, you know, uh, probably didn't go that linear either, by the way, there, you know, we, we know the, the truth of ups and downs. So help someone out right now, there is a coach listening and they're in their third year coaching and they, th there's two coaches. We're going to give two scenarios. There's a coach listening right now. They're in their third year and they think they got it down. Like they're kind of listening to you like, really, it took you 20 years, man. I'm in my third year and I got this thing down, Pat. I'm the greatest coach. And I'm about to coach a million Olympians. And then there's another coach out there right now that's in their third year going, uh, okay, uh, okay, I believe this. So how do I not wait until my 20th year, Finger? How, how do I learn this now in my third, fourth, fifth year? What advice can you give to young coaches? And I, and I don't know that this isn't, I don't know that this is a throws advice here even though we got the throws coach, I think this is a coaching advice. How do you, how can we help accelerate young coaches into this? What I believe is the proper mindset of coaching young people, 18 to 22 years old. Well, I, okay. Unfortunately, I'm going to say it like this. You're going to have to continue. And it isn't like, like you said, it doesn't go from 90, 10 and all of a sudden just switch that it, there is a natural progress and the progression comes from you as a human being learning how to deal with other human beings. So I, uh, hold, hold on finger. Now, now everybody wanted you to give some kind of magic pill and you know, you're gonna have to get that athlete that struggles to learn the hammer because they never did it in high school. You just said something that's really challenging. You said you're going to have to, it's, it's on you. You're going to have to develop as the coach. Yeah. It's not the athlete. It's you as the human being. It's, it's, it's how you process. It's, it's how you cognitively process the ability to coach. Uh, it, it comes down to it. Cause when I was young and you have to program what you're trying to prove to the athletes and trying to prove to yourself, which takes years. And I'm, this is the hardest part to understand. And, and the years, man, the years of doing that programming have to have to lend to successful athletes. So if you have, MAC champions, if you have continually national qualifiers, if you have kids in the top on the platform of the NCAA championships, then you're doing something right. That's the programming aspect of it. Because the reality is this, you could be a third year coach right now. If I'm talking to you as a third year coach and you think you have it down, ask yourself, how many people did you put on the podium at the NCAAs? Because if you didn't put one, you don't have it down. If you didn't put a national champion out there, you don't have it down. And the person that is questioning themselves, that's a good question to have. Who, how were you successful as a coach? Now, everyone's different. Maybe somebody wanted to be a conference champion and not a national champion. Well, that's fine. 
you find out your own level as a person who you want to be. If I don't have somebody standing on that national championship stage, I didn't do my job. So the first aspect of it is being able to understand how to get the athletes there through a programming system. That's where the early years, you better be talking to Don Babbitt. You better be talking to the Pagels. You better be talking to John Smith. You better be talking to every mentor that you can think of. And, you know, unfortunately, like the Judd Logans, uh, how do you program your, your system? Now, just because it came from them doesn't mean it fits you. Like I've learned as I'm watching, as I'm, as I'm sit there and asking questions, I'm like, well, that, I'm glad I'm asking these questions because that really did well with that program and the way you coach the person, but it would never fly with me. It would never sit well with the way I program just because it's who I am in the artistic flow of it. So I've learned just as much of talking to them about what not to do for me as about what to do to do for me. So it, those first, again, four, five or six years is do develop, take some time to develop who you are as a, as, a, as a programmer. And a lot of that comes down to this. I've been talking to my young assistant coaches and I'm excited to be a head coach because I can actually work into being with my assistant coaches as much as my athletes, like really trying to make better assistant coaches. But a lot of it is like, hey, if you have, if you want to know how to play with an athlete, get a walk-on kid that that might you might be good might not be good but then you could that's your test dummy hey what am i going to do here i'm throwing different ideas out did it stick did it work did it not work you don't want to break them by any stretch but did are are they going really well that day are they not doing well you can us as coaches really have to play with our own recipes is it too much salt is it too much pepper is it take this out take that out so you kind of do it takes a while to formulate in your head are you successful as a coach because what stage are you putting them on and then getting to that part where they're programming well. Uh, and then as that happens, okay, now I've got a good program set up, but you as a person now, I don't want to say this to some extent, but you kind of get bored. There's boredom that sets in. So if I do this year after year after year after year, not change anything, sure, I've got a good program, but where's that boredom come in? Where like, okay, well, I didn't change anything. These athletes are killing it. I, so that's where the psychological aspect of So instead of trying to just administer now, positioning to them now i'm befriending them to some extent or i'm being a dad to them so now here's the here's the outlay of the plan how do we work to that me and you together that's where that friendship comes in and i think you early on in your career friendships are hard to have because you're so pinpoint on making that programming right which is i get it it's part of coaching you need to have that programming right in order to be successful the older you get some of the boredom sets in psychologically you can flip things around and you kind of grow as an individual it's just it's, it's like, listen, it's like sanctification. You're always working on the process of being a better Christian. You're always working on the process of, of taking that sin away from yourself and becoming Christ-like follower. And that's no different than in my coaching aspect of it. I'm trying to every day make these kids better. And it, and it did have, it had its flows. You, you start with the mechanics of it and you end up working to the relationship of it. So I think an important aspect you said there is you know, you can go to clinics, you can go to camps, you can go to coaching education. And I, you know, if you've listened to any episodes here, you know that I am a huge, huge proponent of that. Mentors, uh, huge, huge proponent of that. And you and you mentioned some of the, I mean, true legends, uh, specifically in throws, but real legends in our sport. But there's one thing that you can't force, you can't speed up, you can't compact into a short amount of time. And that's experience. 
I think it's exactly what what I hear you saying is, you know, you're you're working on your program in years one, two, three, four, five, and and to your point, that may be three years for one person, it may be ten years for another. We're all different in how we learn and how we uh, process feedback from our own athletes and and programs. As you continue to develop and you gain experience, you see what works, what doesn't work, what, what different parts of your career's boredom when that sets in. How do you get you know plateau, get out of that plateau? Uh, it's that experience part that you just can't. Uh, I love how you talked about your, your one, you're so excited now about mentoring into young coaches. Now that you're a head coach, like you have been with your athletes for many years, you're, you're going to give them so much great leeway and lengthen the leash and experience, but they can't force experience. They're going to need year one and year two, and then year three, four and five, et cetera. So uh, I love that. Let's, let's pivot here a little bit to something we were talking about earlier. I tend to think of these things a little bit differently than I think most people. And it, maybe sounded like you might be on the same wavelength. And I think it's important for people to hear all sides of it. You were talking about recruiting and, you know, the research you're doing on the athletes, and it's not just about the mark. Uh, and I think maybe for throws, specifically male throwers, it might be even more important to see physical uh, abilities in regards to, are they six foot two or five foot 10, et cetera, uh, just because of the, you know, the weight going up from high school to college. Uh, for, for women, I always found, you know, not that I recruited a lot of women shot putters, but I'm like, hey, that 4K is going to stay the exact same <laughs> when you yeah. get to our level. So I'm, if you throw in 50 feet now, I'm good. <laughs> Uh, maybe why I was, I'm not in coach anymore. Um, but you talked about during the recruiting process, almost at the interview process, which is, which is what it is. You're looking for certain things. And if, if someone doesn't have that, and you were talking more like attitude and, and uh, uh, doggedness and determination, if they don't have it, you're like, it's better that they don't come to you. Right. Cause you talked about if, if you come to my program and you aren't ready to be the bastard of the bastard sport, you're going to struggle here, you know? So how, how do you deal with that, that mind frame of when a kid says, Hey, I'm not coming to your program because of whatever reasons they may actually give you, whatever the reasons might actually be. That's actually a, like, I think of that as like a good thing. It's like, Oh, if a kid decides I'm not the right coach for them, phew, we both dodge bullets. They're not going to come here and be miserable. And they're not going to come here and make me miserable and make the program. How do you deal with that during recruiting? Cause you want them all right. I mean, if, if you're attracted to a kid for their marks and personality, you, you want them, but it may not be the right fit. Sure. Sure. I, you know what that, again, that's part of the, the, the coaching aspect of it. I guess this is where maybe I differ than a lot of different coaches. And it, it I, Again, I probably, because it's my centrality, it's who I am I'm, as a Christ follower, it, I, I call it my catch 22. I pray for who needs to be in here. It's here's the other thing for me to me. I coach. That's what I do. God's given me the, the, the ability to coach. So, but I also consider this my ministry, like, and I'm not going to shove it down anybody's throat. I don't like Christ never made anybody a Christian, but I am an avenue. I am an avenue for a ministry essentially. So that's why I think that's kind of a catch 22. Hey, God, if you want them here, cool. If not, whatever. Are you fine? Who, who needs to be here? And that's so being able to be able to process on my own in that aspect of it, because there's a lot of kids that I, you know, I wanted like four heavy studs last year and I missed out on every one of them. But you know what? That is what it is. You go on and, and you say, OK, well, if I miss four heavy ones in a row, I guess I need but two or three. Um, you know, building kids, like kids that maybe not have the biggest mark, but eventually you could work with them and by their junior and senior year or sophomore, junior, senior year, they're up to the level where 
they're at conference, like winning top three, or maybe they make the regional meet or possibly make it the NCAA championships versus the other, the four that I could have had, you know, would have been comp Mac champions, regional, you know, qualifiers and on to the NCAAs within that first year. So a lot of it depends upon, again, how things flow. I, I don't, I don't take anything personally. That's by any stretch of your imagination. Nowadays, if you take it personally, like, oh, they didn't come because of me. Listen, I'm recruiting the Kent State. So it's, it's a two-way street. I'm recruiting you because I want you to be here, but you're recruiting me because you want to be here at Kent State. Do you have the major? Are you willing to go through a lot of work? Uh, are you around your family? There's a lot of different aspects of it. I'm not going to go recruit California, Texas, and Florida because I'm going to bring them to Kent State, Ohio with six inches of snow on the ground all winter long. It is what it is. Like, I've got a field house, but I don't have sunny California weather. So I'm not going to go out and search for them all the time. Now, if they come to me, that's that's fine. And I've I've made some good interactions with like Jamaica. I've I've, I've had a Jamaican female on my throat squad probably for the last I don't know since Danielle in 2012. So the last 10 years, and I really actually enjoy that aspect of it. Is is, is keeping a relationship down there. It's not like I have to have every single Jamaican or or every single Ohioan. It's just you know <clears throat> you learn at 22 years. Like if you get them, cool. If you don't, whatever. Move on to the next one. <laughs> You'll figure out how to have a throws program one way or the other. You know, this does not diminish what you just said, but you also are in the Midwest. It's hard not to have a good throws program. Well, actually, it is hard because there's so many great throws coaches, but there are so many great throwers. (laughs) I get it 100%. I'm reminded. It's the right fit. Does somebody fit here? Do I fit with them? Do they fit with me? Yeah. I'm reminded. So I'm a big Christian hip hop fan. That's my. 99% 99% of the music I listen to is Lecrae and KB and Andy Mineo and KJ52 and more. Uh, the other 1%, by the way, is Vanilla Ice. <laughs> Just in case you're curious what that other 1% is, it's 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 Rob, it's Vanilla Ice. Um, but there's a line, I believe it's in a Lecrae song. He says, you know, you made me a preacher, but you didn't give me a collar, meaning, you know, the traditional Catholic collar, and that's how you know a, pa- a preach, uh, a preach, pre- priest priest yeah for catholicism i'm reminded of that with you when you talk about your faith and you're like yeah you know i'm like this is how i uh i minister i don't have a call i'm not a an official priest or preacher or whatnot but this is how you you show god's love that and what his effect on your life and where you are today right 100 percent. yeah you gotta call it you're not gonna have a throats coach or a head coach or something like that i mean like i would put a collar on no way he's got me in this this line of work because he enjoys this line of people. Like that's a calling. I can call these people. It's awesome. And I'm not that great of a theologian, but I do believe that Jesus never wore a collar either. So I think it, I think it's okay. I think it, it, it fits right in. So obviously his yep. calling was after, you know, close to 20 years as an assistant coach to now the right time. Uh, and you probably knew the insides of it, but it caught me off guard when I saw the retirement of Bill Lawson, who had also been at now Kent State for, for quite a while, uh, to be now the director of track and field. I told you to put a pin in it earlier when I talked about a throws coach being a head coach. Uh, and you alluded to this earlier when you talked about you have my throwers and you're like, oh yeah, and they come at different times. That's traditionally what I see on the collegiate setting for throwers is, you know, hammer throwers come out at uh, 9 a.m., javelin throwers at noon, one section of shot putter discus at two and then another at four, you know, I'm making up times, but you know, it's, uh, it's not unheard of for me to hear of two to three to four different workout groups for for throwers because the events are so radically different i know the long jump and triple jumps different 
but it's still main component is run up, run up <laughs> is the runway. And then you do something different once you go past the, uh, uh, the, the takeoff board. I just ticked off every throws or every jumps coach in the world right now. They're all like, remember I was a jumps coach. I, I know, I, I know I oversimplified that. How do you, yeah. as a throws coach, how do you now as the director, you're responsible for a lot more than what you were as the throws coach. How are you going to change if at all on how you coach in regards to not, not how you coach X and O's, but how you coach organizationally also knowing that, you know, you've got other things you got to do now as the director scheduling, budgeting, assistant coach, yeah. mentoring, et cetera. I, listen, I, maybe it, I, I thought about it before I even applied. Number one, you know, can, can you, can you do all these other things and still be a successful throws coach? But I think really the biggest key is number one is having your, the right assistant coaches around you. So law was the type of guy who had to do most everything himself. He was going to do the hotels. He was going to do this. He was going to, and so he structured himself more dictatorial. Like I, I've got this, I've got this handled. So then it did it freed up a lot of us like, Hey, well, shoot, I've got officials and I've got my throwers, you know, I've got some odds and ends like recruiting aspect of it, but I didn't have a ton of that head coaching stuff. So I was like, shoot, you know, the way he made it look was going to be like, man, do I want to do this? Do I want to bear that, that burden? And then he's kind of take a step back. You're like, listen, that's not how you have to do it by any stretch. You give, you, you get an assistant coach that you trust. And I, I brought um, Mike Schobert. I, I hired him. He was at central Michigan, killed it up there, had more than 60 points or 62 points at our conference championships. And I knew um, sprinting coach wise, he was going to get the job done as far as getting the sprint stuff done. And I can trust that. And I can trust, him doing some of the stuff on, on the day-to-day -day stuff. I've got a, a young assistant, Aunt, uh, Alex Bloom, who uh, is crazy recruiting, awesome recruiting. I can trust and rely on him. And James Croft, my, my distance coach, I can trust. Uh, so it's, it's having those people you trust around you, number one, that I'm not going to be up in the office all day by any stretch of any imagination. The other aspect of it is um, I, my youngest is 12 years old. He's going to get on the bus at 7.30 in the morning. And once he's on the bus, I've got my 17-year-old already drives to high school. My 15-year-old can go with him. I don't have to do lunches. I don't have to get kids on the bus at 8.30. I don't have to pack everything else. I, my mornings have freed up massively. So I plan on being in the office, which is nice, say 8.30 to 11. Then I have group one that goes 11 to 12. We lift from 11 to, or 12 to 1. Session two goes from 12 to 2. Lift from 12, 2 to 3 or 4. Then I, after that, we've got med balls or javelins. I mean, again, you're right. We go section after section after section. Those coaches do. Um, but I've got that morning time to come up here and, hey, what do we need to do? And the, other, the other aspect of it is this. A lot of coaches like to come up in the, in the offices and they sit down and they just BS with their other coaches. So they'll come in and talk about this. Or, listen, I told my staff, when I'm in here, if I've got work to do, I'm not necessarily going to shut my door, but just shut up and I'm going to do my work. You do your work. We get our stuff done. We can have have fun in the office, obviously, because I'm going to have fun wherever I am. But the idea is not to come up and chit chat. The idea is to come up for that hour or two that we need to get stuff done and get it done. And then, boom, you go out and throw scope. So I think sometimes, in all honesty, we step back and we make a little bit too big of a deal about ourselves. Like, oh, as the head coach, we got so much responsibility. Listen, I did hotels. I can set that up in like, like less than a day. I got my schedule down. It's not uberly hard to do this stuff. It's just making time to do it having the coaching staff in the right room, making sure we're all on the same page and proceeding with what we need to do. And if I'm not up at the office, hey, James, you you did your cross country in the morning. You're in the office in the afternoon. Get some stuff done that needs to be done. 
because I'm not going to be up there. So it's just trusting your people for the most part. I do wonder how much, you know, we talk about as Trek coaches, the number of hours that we have to put in in a week. It's not an eight to five job. It's not a 40 hour week job. Uh, and, and I would agree with that, but I do wonder because we don't have that structured eight to five, you know, we have to clock in at eight and out at five. I wonder how many times we, you know, we, um, we, we lax, we relax too much. And it's like, Oh, well, I don't have to worry about, I, I can do the bus schedule tomorrow or two hours from now. And it's like, well, okay, well, there's two hours you you, you didn't have to work that you could have already really worked. You know, I just wonder if we're, if we, if we, if it's self-fulfilling prophecy that, you know, Oh, I, you know, it takes 400 hours a week. Well, it's because you're in the office, not working because, yeah. because we're typically probably not office people as track coaches. That's, I see it all the time. They're like, Oh, we work so much. I'm thinking to myself, like, like they kept on saying, Oh, we're so busy. And I'm like, no, you just get it done. Like literally fascinating. Get it done for like at that hour. And then it's taken off your plate. Like, I'm not saying you can't procrastinate because I think that's building the relationship again, right? You need to have that relationship with the staff and the, the assistant coaches. And when I sit up here, my guess is I'm going to have people filter in my office. So even though I want to get stuff done, I'm always got somebody sitting in the office wanting to talk. I get that aspect of it. But the reality is when I want to get something done, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to say, get out of my office. I got to get this done. Not So I think it is. We, we like to, we're, I think people, people, you know, people, persons. We like the, our 100 athletes and we like to have that discussion. We build these relationships. But if you let that relationships continue to flow into the office, then we say, oh, we're so busy. Not really. It's just your relationship building when you want to. Fine. Just shut that off and get crap done and be done with it. <laughs> I, gotta, yeah. I don't see it as hard. And, and no judgment. I mean, if you are, if you, I'm going to say overcompensate on that side of it, no judgment. It's just hard for you to now say, oh, I'm working 60, 70, 80 hours a week, when in reality, you could pair it back to closer to the traditional 40. But again, no judgment. I mean, if that's how you want to, oh, right. yeah, but, in different parts of our lives, right? You mentioned, you know, a 12-year-old and then, you know, two older ones that are in high school. That is way different than when you had a newborn and two, uh, you know, almost middle schoolers, right? That that life looked a lot different than what you have today yeah, and how you run no I don't think I would have been a head coach if I had anybody in, in that middle school age where I'm trying to still be a dad and I want to get home and like, so no, I'm going to be at home as long as I can. Then I'm going to get done throws coaching. I'm going to go home because I'm going to be home again. Like I've got soccer practice. I got football practice. I've got this. I got to take you to band. I've got like, like right now, my daughter, she just joined the golf team. So do I got to drive her in the morning or pick her up at 10 and drive her to band camp at noon and come back at noon and blah, blah, blah. Well, now my my 17 year old said hey i got a podcast today so you're picking people up so it's still like life still flows around the job in and of itself but you just got to be able to come to the office and get stuff done in your head I mean, it's just part of the process any of these kids going to be track coaches we, i just heard a golf coach which that might be the real sweet coaching gig by the way is become a golf coach no i my kids are so not who i am every my my youngest my 12 year old's more athletic and more like i'm gonna get to it but my oldest is like hey you know what life comes like i could see him living in a van down by a river that is Jonathan, one thousand percent and i'd be like hey i'll visit you down by your van and down by the river and that's where you're living <laughs> that's gonna be good my daughter she is she's the 15 year old she'll probably become a teacher because she just likes to teach everybody and be bossy in the house and then the 12 year old, I think he'll be an athlete and kind of like dad, I guess. I don't know about a track coach. None of them did really track and I don't care. Do what you want to do. Like I've got my reptiles and my track and I, I, I love reading my Bible in the morning and my relationship with Christ is the most important thing. So outside of that, you guys have fun with life and do whatever floats your boat because I don't really care.
Hey, th- th- that's healthy. Some people are listening to that right now and going, wow, what a, that's not a good dad. I actually think, because me and you are, well, that's what I love learning about the people we have on the podcast. Me and you are a lot alike, my friend. That makes me feel bad for you, but <laughs> we're a lot alike. Because I say the same thing. I'm like, all right, whatever you want to do, I don't care. Just go do it. You know, have fun. As long as you enjoy it, that's all that matters. I think that's super healthy as a parent. You know, it's, it's being overly involved, being involved is really, really important. I think there, and it's a fine line, being overly involved. I think is, is an issue. We, we were just at the uh, Illinois state fair. We only went for one reason is because this company that uh, does lures, fishing lures was down there. And my son, huge fisherman. I can't stand fishing at all. Like yes. it's boring to me. I just cannot do it. He yep. fishes 24 seven. And so we literally, when he was younger, we took him to a free fishing day. Cause I was like, it sounds like kind of in the same vein. I was like, whatever the kids want to try, let them try. If they love it, great. If they don't, okay, whatever. Uh, and so we took him to a free fishing day. Cause I was like, well, maybe he'll like it. I don't know. I can't stand it, but maybe he will. And, you know, proverb, you know, pun intended, he was hooked the very first little <laughs> dinky fish. And now he's, he caught a 10 pound bass at camp this summer. And just, I mean, he is, the guy's got like 200 and something lures. I mean, it's, it's. Like when I say he's addicted, he's addicted. And I'm like, knock yourself out. Go do your thing, man. I don't, I, I hate to say it the way you said it, but it is true. It's like, I'm, I don't care. Just go <laughs> do your thing, man. As long as you, as long as you have passion, it's all good. There's right. our, there's our parenting tip of the podcast right there. Uh, okay. Let's go to a different kind of parenting and something that I'm wildly fascinated by because I'm a critter person. You know, I used to have snakes uh, from college up, up until I met my wife, who was not a snake person. Uh, I've had different types of snakes and reptiles. A uh, good friend of mine, Jeff Hartwig, is a big reptile breeder and dealer and things like that. You, I don't know how I, I think I learned it through Facebook. See, social media is amazing. Uh, yeah. You tell me more. You breed, you sell, you, you have these, uh, I'm going to probably say it wrong and I'm going to say lizards. They're geckos. You're oh, going to teach me. Yeah. You have some fascinating reptiles. Tell us about this. How did you get into that? What do you, what do, you do with these things? Tell us more. Uh, so I was always, I always liked animals growing up. I always had either a parakeet or a snake or a rat or I had an iguana when I was in high school. So I, I'm always an animal guy. Um, but it just has kind of evolved to like having a reptile room. And when I was, when I was younger, I, so I had snakes like with you, but then I got married and the wife said, Whoa, no snakes. I was like, okay, I'm okay with no snakes. And so we ended up taking my snake and I traded it at a pet shop for a tortoise. And I ended up, and it was like a Selkutta, the African Selkutta tortoise, which is the fourth largest tortoise in the world. I knew it was going to get super big, but tortoises had me hooked for a little while. I loved their little, like loved who they were, but I knew once Gregory, that was his name. That was our first tortoise. He got to the size where I'm like, listen, I can't, we can't keep this tortoise forever. So I ended up selling him to a person out in California who could raise him on a big farm and, and do their stuff there. Um, and, I, and I got into big research. What's well, the smallest tortoise? And so I had tortoises probably for a decade. But tortoises, honestly, are long-lived. It takes a while for them to mature. You don't even know if they're going to be males or females until year two or three, sometimes four or five. Like if you got big ones like uh, Galapagoses or Aldabras, They'll take 10 or 20 years. So you got to have a long, but I wasn't into that. So I ended up 10 years into Taurus. I'm like, listen, I'm going to, I'm going to step away from the reptiles for a bit and kind of just take a break. And after a year of not having any reptiles, I was like, this is ridiculous. I have to have something. And so I ended up getting, um, I was into geckos for a while. 
Um, so I put some money into some geckos and I got a lot of Australian species. And the nephris was like Wheeler, Wheeler Eye and I got Amy A and Levis and all these different species. And I, again, this is the artistic aspect of me. I would get red ones and orange ones and banded ones. And so I love the artistic going downstairs and feeding them crickets, the whole feeding aspect of it, cleaning cages and looking at them. Um, but after, I mean, I, I started with geckos in 2011, probably by about 2018 or 19, I probably had 40 of them. And yes, it was, and, and, and 40, I don't know, some people are like, oh, 40 is not bad because I have like 3,000. Well, 40 as a, as a track coach. So I've got females that are laying eggs. I've got in, eggs that are incubating, popping out. And I'm always on a track trip. And so the wife has to go downstairs. I'm like, hey, go, you know, see if there's anything coming out of the incubator. And I've got baby cages made. Go put those three babies in the cage. So she is having to deal with this. And I would say by 2019, she had had enough of it. She was pissed. So I was like, well, shoot, I can't not have reptiles, but I can't continue to do what I'm doing. So I end up finding, um, and I don't know how I didn't have them earlier, but like you said, lizards, I, I kind of got, I've, I've shifted in the lizards aspect of it and they're called agurnia. The species is agurnia and it's, it's a, there's um, essentially skinks from Australia um, and they're more rare. And so they, they're a, a super high dollar. They're not cheap by any stretch of any imagination. I have one pair of agurnia that are $10,000. I have another pair of, of depressa that are $4,000, even though I'm selling them because I'm buying some Orboreus cataphractus, which are from uh, East Africa, but they're about anywhere between seven to $10,000 for a pair. So I have massive amounts of money into a couple pairs, but here's the deal. It's like, instead of having 40 geckos that end up to being 20 or $5,000, now I only have six to eight things downstairs and they're live bearers. So they don't have eggs. They are easy with the desert. I have my hot spots on them. If they become gravid and pregnant and they have a baby, it's not like the wife has to deal with them. So everything is self-contained in my reptile room right now. High dollar species, yes, less of them and they're self-contained. So we've done shifting. You know, 40 pets is a lot. 40 pets that you're breeding and taking care of. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm gonna call it a business, you know, it's buying and selling and things like that. That's, that's a full-time job. I, I never could understand with Hartwig with, you know, being a professional um, uh, pole vaulter and then his agency and working with us and it was doing all, I was like, where do you find the time? I mean, I know it's not, you know, it's not a every day you got to make sure something happens, you know, like a dog, you got to feed it every day and walk it every day, but still it's, takes time and effort and research and it, it takes time so we're on yeah. the on the 40 geckos were you breeding like um trying to make specific color patterns and things like that that some people do with like snakes yeah. and other yeah yeah depending on what you're doing with it like in the ball python rule like you say the snakes mm -hmm. they uh it, we call them color palettes and i can't have snakes but i love to watch like they they have snakes that you you can look up on morph market that are probably twenty thousand dollars just for one snake because they have like they have recessive, like a double recessive or a triple recessive or co-dominant genes. And they stack all these genes, there are four or five genes in a snake and it makes their color palette look killer. But it took 20 years to develop that snake because if you have a recessive gene, like an albino is a recessive gene, a piebald is a recessive gene, but you have a, an albino piebald, then that's a double recessive. And you have, so you can have recessive traits or dominant traits or co-dominant traits. And you end up, you have to really know, number one, genetics. If you're a reptile breeder, you have to know genetics, number one. Number two, you have to understand, like mine right now, you have to understand 
the microclimates. So even though they're an Australian species, everyone's like, oh, they like the hot desert. Well, they like the hot desert, yes, but they like it out in the hot for about an hour and then they'll go in the cool shade where there's moisture and humidity. And so people kill the reptiles all the time because they think, oh, I've got an Australian species that likes it hot all the time. Well, did you give it water? Can they, can you have 50 to 60% humidity underneath the log that you have? So I, you constantly have to understand hot spots in the cage, cool spots in the cage, microclimates, everything has like working mechanisms. And it's just, again, I like, I like the aspect of going home and I am not, track and field is what I do as a job, but I don't take this job. When I get home, I more or less enjoy reading about, I was into huge eschatology and I was into huge Adamic and pre-Adamic ages. And when God built, you know, when we started in Genesis or we in Revelations and what are we talking about? Pre-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, all of this. I loved during COVID time. I love to study that. I also love to study my reptiles. So track and field is what I do but I don't necessarily take it home with me. I can put it away. I'm done with coaching. I can put it to the side. I, and that's a, I think huge mental aspect of it. I think, again, if we want to talk about coaches, if you can't have a hobby or if you can't put it down, then you're going to be in trouble 20 years in life when you have nothing else to define you other than track and field. And that's where I think a lot of people times they bounce around sometimes is because they get four or five, six years in, you could see somebody kind of get that boredom sets in mentally and then they need to go somewhere else. And then four or five years sets in, they get bored or the head coach shifts and gets fired. There's other reasons just than getting bored mentally. But I think that's an aspect of it. Got to find a hobby. My hobby is, I would have to say, not, I don't want to say Christ is my hobby because he's my life. That's how I live my life. But reptiles is my hobby is the thing I can go home to and have enjoyment, studying, feeding, breeding, everything else. And unfortunately, like I had just gotten some yellow tree monitors, which are awesome. They're amazing. And I spent like five to $6,000 into them this season, but now as being a head coach and I'm talking to my reptile people last night, I don't think I can keep them because the time frame that the head coaching is going to be involved into is not going to allow me to keep the species because the humidity, they need to be sprayed daily. They need to be checked daily. Eggs are have to be checked. Males with females, the males will eat the eggs. If I'm not there, then we're really screwed. So I added a species that as a throws coach, I could have handled as a head coach. I can't handle. So, so two, two last subjects here. I really want to touch on what I think is something really healthy that, again, I don't think we talk a lot about in the coaching body that we should be. And I, I work hard at when I talk about a coach, instead of saying, hey, it's a coach and blah, blah, blah. I, I like to always refer to it, the person who chooses coach coaching, specifically track and field as a profession. You know, it's, it's one of two professions where the title stays with you 24 seven. So coach, right? Maybe your neighbors probably know you as coach and, you know, kids will, you know, you've, you've been coaching for 20 plus years. Some kid uh, 20 years ago probably will see you and still call you coach. Uh, not, right. not Nate, <laughs> not Nathan, you know, not Mr. Fanger. It's, it's coach. The only other profession is, is doctor. You, you probably have a doctor lives in your neighborhood. It's, Hey doc, how you doing? You know, you go to the grocery store, sure. right, doc, yeah, the dial four, you know, no other profession. No one's, there's no, you know, you don't call your accountant, accountant, Jim, you don't call your, um, uh, uh, I was going to say therapist, but that'd be a doctor, but you know, it's one of those two titles that always stays with us. And so a lot of times we make that our life. We are coach that is first, second, and third. And in, I don't want to call it today's culture because this certainly isn't anything new, but in culture and society, we like to celebrate the grind, right? Like, oh, if you ain't grinding 24 seven, if you ain't uh, working on your craft as a coach 24 seven, you know, you're doing it wrong. 
Have you ever heard, Finger, have you ever heard of IR theory? No. So the I stands for the individual, you, you, Nathan Finger. And the R, so you kind of make two columns. I, it's you. That's, that's the only thing in the column, you. Who God made you to be, who God wants you to be, et cetera. It's you. And in the R column, it's all your roles. So you mm. specifically have a ton of roles, right? You, one role is a coach. Uh, one role is a, uh, a teammate. You, you have other um, um, uh, people in your athletic department that, that depend on you to do their jobs and vice versa. Uh, head coach is a role for you. Uh, son is a role for you. Husband is a role. Dad, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Reptile. Uh, what do you, are you a reptologist? What do, we, what do we call you? Reptile keeper, breeder, whatever. What would you be? Yeah. Uh, that's a role. And so you have all these roles and I'm missing a ton of roles. Um, I, I don't, I don't mean, yeah, you, I think you said you had brothers and sisters, right? So your, your brother is a role. Um, mentor for some people, teacher, et cetera. There's all these roles, right? If you, if, if you were to rate yourself on any one of those, you just pick a role, uh, maybe as husband, you're like, you know, Hey, I, from one to 10, one, I am failing 10. Boy, I'm killing it. Uh, how am I doing as a husband today? Right. You can't be an eight, nine, or a 10 as a husband. If you can't see what God has made you to be so your eye is a 10. Sometimes we, we, we feel bad, right? It's like, oh man, I'm just not, I'm just not a good human. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's usually societal pressures, right? I'm not doing charity work. I'm not, maybe I'm not married. Maybe you think that's what makes you a 10 because you're married to someone, which is not true, right? But if you can't see what God sees in you as a 10, well, then you can't be a 10 as a coach or an eight or not, you know, eight, nine, and 10 is all kind of the same thing. You're, you're killing if you're eight, nine, 10, you can't be an eight, nine, or 10 as a dad if you're don't understand what God sees in you and what he's made you to be. Right. So part of that, where I'm getting to is when you talk about, Hey, I'm a coach and that's important to you. That's my profession. That's what supports your family. And uh, you love the sport, things like that, but that's not what define. That's not number one. Like right. my faith, what sounds like, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Sounds like faith is number one. Maybe family right. is number two. <laughs> uh, maybe others is number three. And, and we, we, we tend to forget that self has to be in there as, as coaches, you know, it's a very selfless profession. You're giving towards others. You're giving towards others, kids, but there has to be, we sometimes forget about that. We, we have to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of others, right? We have to take care of our health. We have to take care of uh, future retirement, things like that. We have to, we have to do things that are selfish so that we can become and do selfless things. So I, I think that what you mentioned there about, you know, hey, you know, I don't take my work home. When I go home, I'm, I'm in those other roles. I'm dad and husband and son calling your parents, things like that. That's not talked about enough uh, in our profession here as coaching track. We, we, it's easy to get on social media and with our buddies at, at meets and stuff and talk about, yeah, I went to this clinic and I went to this camp and I was up till 10 o'clock uh, watching this video all over again. And then I got up at six and, uh, you know, had first weight practice. And it's like, wow, where did you, and especially with our job being on weekends, it's, it's easy to suck up every weekend recruiting and going to meets. Uh, I, I think what you, what you expressed there is something that it's not talked about enough and it needs to be talked about more. It needs to be the common talk in my, in my true opinion, after, you know, being a coaching advocate and talking to coaches around the country. Uh, I just think it's so important and, and we're kind of dropping the ball. Well, and I think, so that that's where I'm at now, though. but like I have had times if you ask my wife and he's like, oh, man, that guy's up at 11 o'clock at night watching film. Right. 
because I at some point in time I was still trying to find who I was in the coaching. How how do I or what am I looking for? How am I doing this? How am I so I think there is like again ebbs and flows of life, like where I had in that first four or five years as a young coach is how do I hone myself as a coach? What am I looking for? How am I developing this? That's a big aspect of it. And then and then obviously coming home and, and still being a dad. And, and, and that's, that's where I find myself now more than anything. I'm not saying it, when the kids are out of the house, I'm like, Oof, I haven't done anything track and field wise for about five or six years. I haven't done any personal development. I haven't watched the film. Like, I don't know, like, let me get back caught back up under this a little bit. Like, I think that's, you've got to allow yourself to be able to go through some of those ebbs and flows in, in those roles and not just stick with one. If you're, yeah, honestly, if you're just going to be a parent and a dad, then you might not be a successful throws coach or a coach at all, because you've got to be able to have time to develop you as a person in that coaching role. Or if you you can't just overload one or the other, if I'm going to just give me a reptile owner and go home and just have reptiles then good, maybe get out of the coaching profession and be a reptile guy. So it's how you balance that Christ in our life is all about balancing. How does he keep us balanced? You know, obviously you keep Christ as, as your centrality. My, that's my focal point. And how do I work that in my head around everything else? Like when you say your role as a dad, a husband is this and that, I was thinking everything is a ministry. I'm a, I, I'm a, in my, my, as a husband, I'm a minister in my role as this I'm a minister. It's, it's where he has you. That's it's kingdom building thought process. I'm, I'm here to, he's has me established as my kingdom, but in my kingdom revolves around the bigger aspect of his kingdom. So how do we, how do you put those roles in the mindset of he is, he is king, he's centrality and how you work that he's given you around his, his, his structure. Right. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I think you're right. We don't talk about it enough. And I think a lot of times at, coaches are 20 years in and they, all, they've only known coaching versus having a hobby and taking a deep breath and doing something else and knowing who you are as an individual. Those are key aspects of it. I love snowboarding with my sons in wintertime, even though it's in the middle of the season, I will figure out how to do a Friday night up on a mountain somewhere because that's huge to what I am. I'm from Montana. If I'm not snowboarding, if I'm not being a husband, if I'm not going to football practice with my 12 year old, if I'm not having reptiles, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I'm not doing what I need to do to, to recharge my batteries. Once every summer, I like to head out West. I didn't get to this summer, which is fine because I got a new role, but I need to be out in Montana for a week or South Dakota for a week, or I need to be some, those are recharging batteries and getting you back grounded to your feet. And then, stepping back into the coaching role. I knew we would find something that we didn't have in common. I'm never snowboarding. I hate snow. <laughs> I, I'm in an Illinois and I married a Chicago girl, so I ain't leaving, but yep. yeah, man. And I ain't going to Montana. I ain't camping. That's I assume when you say Montana and stuff, it's like, Oh, you roughing it. Yeah. You know, roughing it to me is I have to choose a Hampton over a Hilton garden Inn, man. I'm just, you know, I'm not that yeah. tough. All right. That's why I, was, I would never been a thrower. Not, not tough enough at all at all um well thanks you know you actually you helped me kind of change my thinking there uh, finger as you were talking about when i talk about you know the roles and god family other self you, you know you're, you're not a you can't i don't believe you can be a coach number one two and three like your, your profession no, no other profession ask for that no nothing else business owner etc that might be the closest but still uh but what you kind of helped with my thinking there is the evolution of the person who be, who chooses to be a coach. So uh, maybe it is different year one, two, three, four, five of a coach. Maybe they do need to be 24 seven ish coach. Uh, different things that play into theirs. Are they married or not? And, you know, cause obviously you know, the, you know, then you're responsible for other people. Uh, but maybe when you're, you know, I was a, I was a single 20 year old 
you know, coach, when I first got into it, I didn't, I didn't have responsibility for anybody else outside of my athletes. So I could just do nothing but that. Uh, and then as you know, move along now, I think about, you know, wife and two kids. I'm like, Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't do that with, you know, I know what my personality would be and it would, I would be taken away from my fatherhood and my, my husbandry for sure. So, uh, but that evolution. And then, so maybe that means coaches in your role, 20 years on 30 years on, maybe that means the evolution for that person who chooses to be a coach is to help the younger people, the newer people that are getting into coaching. Hey, you know, at some point you're going to have to, you're going to do this a little different. You know, I know you, mm-hmm. I know you enjoy watching track on TV 24 seven and being at a track meet every weekend. And yada, yada, at some point it's going to have to be a little different. Doesn't have to mean less passion. Doesn't have to mean less proficiency. It just means it has to maybe be different. It maybe has to go down the um, priority totem pole, if you will, uh, from mm-hmm. there. Yeah. You really, that, that really, as you were talking, it kind of helped me change that okay man hey let's wrap up here you are the new director of track and field at kent state a program that has had many many successes every year there are athletes that are at nationals this this is an expectation of the program at least from the outside you may tell me different uh which means you probably wouldn't have been the new director if if that's different for you uh what's got you excited man you got a new year coming up new coaches you mentioned the coach from central michigan i believe he's an alum right i always get excited when alums come back to their alma mater uh what's got you excited coming up here in the next couple seasons as you start putting your your fingerprints here on the program you know, I just, I think the the biggest aspect of what we need to do is be consistent with the coaches that are here. So that my, my excitement is the staff that I have now is, I think, going to remain for the next four to six years, right? That yes. is in the continuity. Like, I think, I think the biggest aspect of not being able to win conference year after year after year is just when you have a different coach, you have to get on the same page and learn a new system and who do they recruit and who they not recruit. So are we filling the right gaps? Are we filling the right holes? And if you have a turnover after turnover after turnover, it becomes a little bit, I don't know, it becomes just, it does not everyone's on the same page at all given time. So I think once that page becomes, consistent, uh, I think I, that's my goal is to just be uh, the top player in our conference championships first. I mean, that's, I think that's the administration wise wants to see that. Um, and, and we, you know, for the individuals of the athletes, getting them championship rings and having them, uh, be able to really feel the success over and over and over again, that's crucial. But I also want to be relevant, possibly on the, on the, on the NCAA stage. So is it, is it a, a thing where you can be top 20 to top 25 year after year, uh, at the national I mean, you have the right people that can, that can get the job done. I mean, it's really fine. And, you know, one, two, three people. Like I had Danielle who ended up winning um, the shop at one year and fourth in the discus in the same year. And she was just because of her alone, we, I think we were like 15th in the country just because of her point. So it's, it's getting the right people in the right place um, to, to, to win the conference championships year after year and, and see how well you can do at the big show. Well, you know, knowing you for a while now, having listened to your story here, knowing the uh, you talk about consistency, your personal consistency there at Kent State. I have no doubts that, you know, what you've done 
uh, and this is no, you know, uh, good friends with Bill Lawson, and he did an amazing job. You know, it's it's going to be different, I think, because it's a different person in the in the head chair. Uh, but I think you know the things that he built, that that you know he added on to what Wendell built, and he added on to what the coach before them. Uh, I think it's just a continual building process, and I'm excited to see it, man, because you are in a tough conference that 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 did not get weaker, by the way. <laughs> Maybe it got tougher as it you know as the coaches continue to develop, and uh, we'll see what new things happen at Akron, kind of the rival of. Kent State there down the road so that'll be uh, interesting to see but man uh, we're excited to see it we think uh, big things are coming and uh, bigger big continually big things are coming uh, and it'll be exciting yeah. to see you know your your like I said that that your uh, fingerprint that you put on it and uh, I, I fully expect it'll be 80 throwers and 20 jumpers and sprinters and distance so it's, I'm excited just to see you know, 100,000 throwers at Kent Ohio but that's one thing though like literally, there's no way you could, I'm not going to change my throw. I'm not going to go down. I'm not going to go up. I think you have to be consistent. Like I'm good and I give good points to the team. But if I had 80 points to the team, number one, I would kill us. We couldn't win conference or it'd be too busy as the head coach. So you better, you got, you have to know your role. Just keep consistent. Consistency again. Know what you've done in the past. Continue to do what you've done. Figure out how to get that done. Don't add, don't take away. Yeah, I think that's key. I love it, man. I love it. And I'm so thankful, man. You know, um, you're, you're, you're just starting to learn a bunch of new things, right. As the new director and you're starting to put your plans in action, you're starting to create your plans and then put them to action. You're hiring, et cetera. You know, the kids probably come back to school here any day now. So cross country season is literally a blink away, which means fall practice is a snap away. Uh, you know, for you to give us today's time, man, it means the world to us, you know, um, your journey is important. It's one of the reasons why we started this podcast, because we truly believe the people who choose to be track coaches, your journey is important. What's awesome about your journey specifically, if it were a book, you know, if, it was, if I use the example of a book, we, we might, maybe we're getting close to halfway through that book, which means... Yeah. There is a whole mess more to go, man. There's a lot of chapters to be written uh, in your journey. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like you're barely at the 200 meter mark for, for a 400. I have no hammer analogy for that. So I'm just going to use the 400, uh, but you're <laughs> barely getting to that 200 meter split, which is exciting because you have a lot of things built up and there's a lot of things ahead of you uh, for the program and the golden flash, which is uh, pretty exciting, man. And so I'm just so thankful for your time today and, and being here with us. Yeah, I appreciate you guys putting me on. It's been fun. Absolutely. I was like, awesome, man. I told you we'd have fun, man. Throwers. I don't know. They're a different breed. And I mean that in all the best ways that that's one of his roles, by the way, thrower, right? I mean, that's, that's quite amazing. Uh, thank you yeah. for being here today and listening to us again, just super humbled uh, that you spent any time with us. And here we just did an hour and a half with just another amazing person who, thank goodness, you know, this guy could have been an art teacher. I, I wouldn't have interviewed him if he was an art teacher somewhere. Right. Thank goodness. He became a track coach and has affected so many young people's lives in a positive manner. So many of his kids have gone on to be coaches, have gone on to be parents, uh, business owners. I mean, that's the real impact of a track coach, whether you're at Kent, Ohio, you follow Alabama, Los Angeles, California, it don't matter. You affect young people in positive manners. And that is your ultimate, ultimate gift to this world for being a track coach, man. I'm just so thankful for you. So join us next week. We'll do it all over again. We'll get another guy a gal who just chooses to spend a lot of time with me and uh, we'll explore their journey and see what kind of value we can bring out of them have a great day thanks man thanks mike what an incredible journey coach has been on so awesome to hear their story in their own words tremendous proof of the positive effects coaches make on a daily basis 
Help us spread the word of this great journey by sharing on your favorite social media channel. And don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. You just might get a shout out on a future episode. That's it for today. Join us next week when we'll connect you with another amazing coach.